0: Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com
1: The name I hate. All the people came together as one in a square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the law had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Marseah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashem, Hashbadana. Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see see him before he was standing above them. And he opened it, and the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord and the great God, and all the people lifted their hand and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people of the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that, pe- that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law. And the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written on the law, which the law had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. Then So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile exile, built temporary shelters and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. The Israelites had not celebrated it like this and their joy was very great. Day after day from the first day to the last Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days and on the eighth day in accordance with the regulation there was an assembly." Thanks, thanks Joe for that Uh, well done for getting all those complicated names Um, yeah saying with confidence. That's always the best policy with big names in the Bible. Well done. Thanks for that. So Andy Kenyon's now going to come and preach to us on Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9. I'm just going to pray for Andy just before uh, he preaches uh, to us this morning. Lord, uh, I just pray that you will bless Andy as he brings your, your word to us this morning. He opens it up and it explains that to us, Lord. Uh, I pray that you'd anoint his words um, and that they would, they, would, they would receive receptive hearts, Lord, in us as he preaches them to us. So, bless him as, as he preaches. Help us to listen, Lord, uh, this morning. In your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, over to you, Andy. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Um,
0: and for those that don't know me, um, as Andy has said, I'm also called Andy. Um, my wife, Becky, isn't on, on the screen. She's currently making sure my two boys don't, don't march into the room and um, stop trying to disturb me as I'm speaking. Um, And thanks to Joe um, for reading the passage. When when Andy asked me the other day, did I want someone to read the passage for me? Um, I considered all the really complicated names that are in that passage and decided that yes, (laughs) yes, I did want somebody to read it for me. Um, And like um, I mentioned that we've got two kids and like lots of other parents, we started lockdown with really good intentions to homeschool our eldest son, Thomas. I think we managed past a week of it before we gave in to the reality that we're not actually teachers, that home isn't school, and that we're not able to do a full-time job and teach children. But I do remember doing one exercise with Thomas. It was a writing exercise, and he had an activity book where you follow patterns, and it helps you to, to write shapes and letters and numbers. And he would only do this exercise if I held the pen for him. He was getting frustrated, and I could tell... That he was lacking confidence. But I pushed him, I persevered, and I probably bribed him with chocolates. And he did it, he did it by himself. And I was overjoyed with him. I felt so proud of him because he'd overcome his feelings of inadequacy and weakness and managed to do something that he hadn't managed to do before. And then he wanted to do it again by himself without chocolate. All of a sudden, Thomas had a confidence. A strength to do more and that strength came because he saw and understood the joy that I had in him he took strength in my joy and this morning we're looking at chapters eight and nine of of the book of Nehemiah but I want to focus um, mostly on one line in chapter eight which uh, which is in verse 10 when Nehemiah says to the people the joy of the Lord is your strength it's a fairly well-known verse and, and we have many worship songs, uh, popular worship songs that we sing that are based on this line. And we're going to focus on this and, and we're going to look at two things um, from chapters eight and nine this morning. The first one is, how does God's joy give us strength? And then the second is, how does God's joy help us to confess our sin? So how does God's joy give us strength? Well, we've, we've been working through the book of Nehemiah. And and so far we've seen that many of the exiles have returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. And we know that the exile had been brutal. Um, The event itself and the aftermath was completely burned into the minds of the Israelites. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, as as Joe just read, um, we see that people come together to hear Ezra reading the law, which is God's word, um, the Bible. And at this time, the the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem is not yet complete. The people are literally standing together en masse in the wreckage of their half-built city. And as Ezra reads the law, the people survey the scene around them and they begin to weep. But then Nehemiah says this amazing thing. He says, go out, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. How is it possible for the people to go from a feeling of grief and weakness to strength and joy? Well, verse 8 tells us that not only did Ezra read the law, but the Levites made it clear to the people, gave it meaning so that people understood it. What is it that they came to understand? Because when we think of the law, we can, we can see the law um, in the Old Testament as, as just a set of rules and we can see it quite negatively. But actually, it's the opposite. I'm, I'm a dad, I, I love my kids, and part of me raising my kids well and loving my kids well is that we have rules for them. We have rules for them because I want to train them to be good human beings and to be safe. And that's why I don't let my two-year-old, Joel, play with knives, because I want to keep him safe. And I enforce these rules because I know that they're good for my children, they're good for their well-being. But also more than that, these rules show that they are part of my family. I don't have rules for my neighbour's kids, because they're not mine. I'm sure they're lovely, but they're not my kids'. And in the same way, the law is God's perfect standard for how he wanted his people to live. It's, it's God's way of telling the Israelites not to play with knives. And, and more than that, it shows them that they belonged to him. Deuteronomy 26, uh, verse 16 says, The Lord your God commands you this day to follow His decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. But then it goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame and honour high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord, your God, as he promised. So when the Israelites hear and understand the law, this is what they remember. This is what they remember and understand, that they are God's people, God's chosen people, his treasured possession. And this is why they go from weeping when they survey the scene in their city. So verse 12, where it says that they celebrate it with great joy. It's because they are strengthened by God's joy. And what exactly is, is God joyful about? Well. I think it's this, I think it's that the Lord is joyful in his people. He's joyful about his people, his treasured possession. He's joyful because he's seen his people return from exile, they're together in the holy city, and he is full of joy over them. But in order for the Israelites to be strengthened by this joy that God has in them, they had to see it and understand it, which is why it was important that the Levites explained the law when Ezra read uh, read it out to them. And if you think back to my example of Thomas and writing the alphabet and starting to write his name, in order for my joy to strengthen him, he had to see it and understand it. I had to explain to him that I was proud of him. If I'd have kept a poker face and said nothing and and been very stoic and British about it, he wouldn't have carried on and I would have needed more chocolate to get him to write. That's how it works. That's how joy can strengthen people. I remember going on a a weekend away when I was um, 18 years old. I'd only been a Christian for a few months at this point. And if I'm honest, it hadn't been easy. Um, When I went on this weekend away, I would felt discouraged. Um, I felt defeated by my own wrongdoing. I hadn't noticed any real change in me. Um, And in all honesty, I was close to giving up on the faith altogether. But during one of the sessions, this weekend, away, a lady called Sharon, um, who didn't know anything about my background, started to pray for me. Now, I'm I'm the result of an unplanned pregnancy. Uh, my parents were, were 17 when I was conceived. There's, there's no intent. There's no doubt that they definitely definitely had no intention of having a child together. I'm growing up. I, I was a pretty miserable kid. Um, didn't have a great time growing up and I believed that I was unwanted and un- unlovable um, and the fact that I was an unplanned, unplanned pregnancy and and in the case of my, my dad my biological dad's family an unwanted pregnancy um, this only amplified this sort of sense of um, how I believed myself to be unwanted and <clears throat> it's only because my nana was a Catholic, a devout Catholic and therefore quite staunchly for life, that I made it out of the womb safely. So this all kind of played into this this idea that I wasn't necessarily wanted or, or loved or, or treasured. But Sherman didn't know this. Sharon had no idea about my background. But when she started to pray for me, I remember her saying to me with tears in her eyes, God says that you are not a mistake. It's um, it's still the most powerful sentence that anyone's ever said to me. One I've ever Usually when I share this, I start crying. Um, She she went on to quote Psalm 139, which says that, uh, which talks about how I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. What happened here is that God had used Sharon to tell me that I am his and that he had joy over me. That I wasn't here by accident, but I was made by a joyful father who loved me and I was strengthened. This was a turning point in my life. And I continue to be strengthened by remembering this truth. My, and I went from, from feeling unwanted to knowing that the God of the universe had planned not just my birth, but all of the days of my life. And that's how God's joy can give us strength. How does, how does God's joy, though, help us to? To confess our sins, we haven't had a chance to read Chapter nine, um, but chapter nine is um, all about the Israelites confessing their sin. Um, I mentioned that my, my nana was a Catholic, and, and that meant as a child i'd go to not just go to mass but I, also every every few months I'd go to confession and co- confession was a very strange experience for me you'd go into a room uh, alone and talk to the priest and you'd tell them all the things that you'd done wrong um, and I was, a, I was a child i didn't really Have any faith to speak of. Um, So I just said the same thing every single time. Um, I've I've been swearing uh, and I've been rude and disobedient to my parents and teachers. That was my stock response every time. Um, And the priest would tell me to go outside. I'd say some, he'd tell me to recite some prayers and also offer a thing called penance. Now, penance was basically a good deed to make up for the bad things I'd done. And usually um, this priest used to tell me to do the dishes. And it always seemed like a fair deal to me because I usually did the dishes anyway. Um, now looking back at, at this experience, I can, I can see many, many problems with, with um, this sort of confession. But I think the biggest is this. It gave me the impression that I had to do something more than just confess my sin in order for God to forgive me. In other words god wouldn't forgive me for swearing unless i washed the dishes and recited a few prayers in the right order but when we look at the bible we see that god isn't like that at all as i mentioned chapter 9 is is, is this one long prayer of confession and it comes it takes place a few days after um the events of chapter 8 and, it, and it's an incredible prayer it's one of the most powerful prayers in the entire bible and it's worth having a read um uh, when it's at, at the end of this service. It's um, it doesn't make any excuses of allowances for what the people have done in their history. It doesn't try and shift any blame to what happened unto God. It's a pure, honest confession of sin. And it's not followed by any penance. It's because they knew that God's forgiveness of them was based on his grace and mercy and had nothing to do with their own good deeds. And you can only pray a prayer of confession like the Israelites pray in chapter 9, when you know that the one you are confessing to is completely merciful and gracious. So how then does this help us to approach confession? Do we fall into the trap where we confess our sins of, of, of thinking that simply confessing isn't enough? Do we often feel that like we have to go further to show that we're really sorry? How often do we feel like we need to do something good in order to balance the things that we've done bad, in order for God to be happy with us and to forgive us? What about when we know that we're trapped in, in patterns of sin, we keep falling into the same hole again and again and again? Do we come before God to confess that sin, expecting him to be angry, waiting to punish us? Do we expect him to be scowling when we enter his presence? Or do we know that God takes joy in us and delights in us as his treasured possession? Do we know that we're truly forgiven for our sin when we confess it? Do we believe the words in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 where where John says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And what this means is that we we simply can't fall so far that we can't be found again it means that we can't fall outside of god's grace his mercy and love for us it means that we can approach god not just hoping that we'll be forgiven but knowing that we are when we confess in the same way that god took joy in his people when they returned from exile he takes joy when we return to him and confess our sins and more than that it's his joy his delight to forgive us when we know that we have a heavenly father who delights in forgiving us how can we not want to confess our sins to him now how, how is it possible for us to have this incredible access this incredible grace and mercy and um, given to us well Chapter 8 and 9 of, of our pass of Nehemiah, uh, the passage that we've just been reading. It takes place in the, um, the seventh month of the Hebrew ca- uh, calendar. Um, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but I think it's called Tishri. And the prayer in chapter 9 is on the 20th twen- was on the 24th day of the month. And that's exactly 14 days after one of the most important days in the Jewish calendar, which is Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Um, and on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats. And the first goat would be, would be sacrificed. This goat would die on behalf of the people. This goat would take the punishment for the wrongdoing of the people. And the second goat would be released into the wilderness. This, this goat would be carrying all the sins of the people and would be, would be sent out of the city walls and released into the wilderness. And this goat, um, the scapegoat, would never return. And it symbolised to the people that the sins that their sins have been totally removed from them. And so, when the Israelites gather together, um, chapter eight, just before the Day of Atonement, chapter nine is just after. The events, the, the 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 sacrifices of the Day of Atonement would have been fresh in their memories. So this idea that their sins are completely removed from them, that God has directed the punishment for their sins onto somebody else would have been completely imprinted onto their minds. And they would have known that it's only through this ritual, this, this yearly sacrifice for sin being made, that they could enjoy God's forgiveness and presence. So what does that mean for us? Because we don't celebrate the Day of Atonement. Um, how does all this help us to confess our sins? Well, the reason we don't take annual sacrifices for our sins is because, as Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7 tells us, Jesus sacrificed for our sins once and for all when he offered himself. The Israelites looked to the Day of Atonement to know that they were forgiven, but we look to the cross. And when we look to the cross, we see the sins that we had committed pinned to it. And we know that we are forgiven for the things that we've done wrong because Jesus died in our place. Now I stop going to, to confession and to Mass when I was about 13 years old. Um, I had no faith to speak of at this point. I became a follower of Jesus when I was about 17. Um, And it's only become clear to me 18 years later. um, You can do the maths and work out my age. Um, It's only become clear to me how much and for how long I still saw confession like I did as a child. It's taken years of growth and maturity to, to truly know and understand that That Jesus' death on the cross was a one-time thing that was for all of my sins. Because I spent years treating confessing sin like it was only part of what I had to do to get right with God. I always assumed that God was angry with me when I stumbled. I'd fallen into the same old holes and patterns of sin and, and I'd think to myself, well this time I've really blown it. There's no way back this time as if there was some kind of limit to God's grace. And I would purposefully try and separate, it's, it's funny to say it, but it, I'd purposely try and separate myself from him because I thought I wasn't worthy to be near him. And I wish I could point to a, a moment in my life where, where this truth fell into place and, and finished with a nice dramatic story, uh, but I can't. Um, I can't because it, it, it didn't happen like that. It, it happened as a, as a gradual process. And the reality is it's likely to be the same for all of us or for most of us. It's likely to be a gradual and slow process. We often don't realize that we're changing. We often don't realize that our minds are being transformed and that we come to understand um, God better. until so we look back and see how we've changed. Like we've seen in these chapters, the Israelites had heard the word of God and their hearts were changed. Their, their minds were transformed and and As it was for them, so it is for us. It takes time reading the Bible, hearing God's word, praying, talking to the Father, learning, being filled with, with good stuff to help us to understand him better. These are the things that help us to hear God's voice. These are the things that help us to recognize his voice. And when we do that, we understand and we know that we are his people. And because we're his people, he takes joy in us and delights over us. And just like the Israelites in this passage, when we know who we are and who we belong to, we can take strength. And we know that God delights in forgiving us, and therefore we can see confessing our sin as a freeing thing. Last weekend, we took a walk down to the River, uh, the River Mersey, which uh, runs near our house. And there's a section of that river near Didsby, where a little mini beach has formed. There's a bit of sand and some stones and we went there and the boys paddled in the water and we were throwing stones in, in, in the river and I noticed there were lots of smooth stones and these stones are smooth because they've spent many, many years submerged in the water. One time they were sharp and jagged but as the water flows over them, it shapes them it shaves off the sharp edges and it makes them smooth and it's a bit like that for us when we're submerged in God's word when we're submerged in God's presence and his spirit we too are transformed the running waters of God's word shapes us and transforms us and smooths us out but it only works if we're in the water you see those stones that come out of the water they were on the, the little beach they're no longer being smoothed and it all sounds a bit simplistic but it's that simple. It really is that simple. Because often we want the instant transformation. We want to have that big eureka moment where everything changes. And I know I've had them. I shared one of those moments. But, but most of my Christian walk has not been like that. More often it's the, the small, mundane, daily choices and habits that God uses to shape who we are. It's being in the water when we're in God's word, when we know that we're His people, that He delights in us, and that our sins. Are forgiven, and when we know that we're God's treasured possession, that He takes joy in us, that Jesus died in our place, that He He takes delight and joy in confessing our sins, it means that we can take strength from Him and have the strength to freely confess our sin, know, knowing that God delights in forgiving us. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to hand back over to, to Jake. For, uh, he's going to lead us in some worship. Father God, I I, I thank you that you are an amazing God, that you take joy in us, not because of anything that we've done, but because you are a loving and gracious Father. Lord, I I pray that we would take strength from your joy in us. I pray that your, your joy in us would help us to be people who can come and confess our sins freely, who could boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence and find grace and mercy when we
1: need it. Um, In Jesus' name, amen.